Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been talking together the last several weeks uh, about the basics of Christian belief, and we've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide. And last week, we looked at the very beginning of the Creed's teaching on Jesus. We looked at the words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And this morning, we're just going to talk about the next two words in the Creed, our Lord. Uh, so that means that we're going to talk together about what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord and what it means for people like you and me to confess that he is Lord, to believe it, to profess it with our lives. So I'm going to read from Colossians 1 for us, verses 15 through 23. It's printed in your order of worship, and you can follow along there or in your Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, admit that we need to borrow those words that we just sang and say that we are turning unfilled to you again and that we need to hear from you and we need to be fed by you. Like those three men uh, that went up on the mountain with Jesus in the gospel lesson that we just heard, what we hope for is to see Jesus more clearly even if we don't know exactly what that all will mean for us. So, Father, meet us in the places where we are, those of us who feel close to you, those of us who feel far away from you, those of us um, who have been running from you, those of us who aren't even sure why we're here. Meet all of us and show us Jesus' grace clearly. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, back in the winter of uh, 2009, uh, it was just a couple of days, five, six days, after our former governor, Rod Bogoyevich, had been impeached and removed from office. Uh, I was driving out to the northwest suburbs, suburbs or something, and uh, I looked up and passed under that open road tolling structure, the first one that you pass on the Jane Adams. And I looked up at that sign and I realized that the somewhat, uh, that that somewhat infamous sign had been changed and that the name of our former governor had been removed from it. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, that was pretty quick. This guy's only been out of office four, five, six days. And I say that those signs were infamous because, um, they caused a little bit of a stir when they were first put up. 
before that time, uh, our governors did not plaster their name above our highways, but about a year into his first term in 2004, he started plastering his name above the highways. It cost about a half a million for him to do it, so it caused a stir. But as propaganda machinery goes, uh, it was incredibly effective. You never, ever wondered who ran the place. <laughs> you always knew. And of course, our mayors have done that for a very long time. There's a strong tradition in our city. Um, the mayors put their name on everything. You never wonder who runs the city either. Their names are everywhere. Now, the truth is those signs on the Jane Adams had been taken down really just hours after he had been removed from office. He was impeached on January 29th, and by the end of the day, on the 30th, all of those signs were gone. They took down his picture in the Capitol office literally minutes after the Senate vote on impeachment. I mean, one minute you run the place, and the next minute you don't. Well, when the New Testament was written, everybody knew who ran the place. And by place, I mean the entire known world. I mean, the propaganda machinery of the Roman Empire was unparalleled, unparalleled in human history. All over the empire, coins and calendars and town names and inscriptions and innumerable other things it declared every day in the empire these things, who ran the place. They were completely unavoidable. More than that, the ubiquitous Roman soldiers <laughs> carrying with them the ever-present threat of swift violence under this ironic banner, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They, everywhere in the empire, let people know who ran the place. It was the adopted son of Julius, Caesar Augustus, who ran the place. And by the time the New Testament was written, uh, emperors were being hailed as gods in some places in the empire. And so people the world over, in, in every place where the empire touched down, they had this confession that they made. They were compelled, really, to make a confession if they wanted to stay safe, if they wanted to stay in line. It was the only safe and sane confession. They would say, Caesar is Lord. As one famous inscription from the mid-50s put it, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news that was brought to men through him. Well, church, there was, of course, one group of folks who stubbornly refused to make the confession that Caesar is Lord. For them, it would have been unthinkable to utter those words. And so against common wisdom and against common sense, and despite the very real threats of ostracism and exclusion and death, this group of people had their own confession, their own profession. Almost unthinkably, <laughs> Their confession was about a man whose very birth was surrounded with whispers about his mother's faithfulness or unfaithfulness, maybe, in conceiving him. His hometown was a dusty backwater in a third-rate country on the far eastern edge of the empire, a place in the empire that I doubt Augustus had ever even thought about, not even for a second. 
Their confession was about a man who died an undignified death, a horrific death, on a device that was really the height of the empire's terror apparatus. And these people knew all of this. They knew every last line of those details, and they were happy, happy to make their own scandalous and alternative confession of faith anyway. Church, the earliest Christians said to one another, Jesus is Lord. That has been the profession of the church from day one until now. It is what we affirm when we say with the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And it means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means he runs the place. The parallel with the Caesars actually is helpful here to a point. I mean, think about it. It's not like Augustus was put forth as one option among many if you wanted to have an emperor. No, his authority was presented as unassailable truth. Deny it and see what happens. Rebel against it and see how it works out for you. And the first Christians, I think, meant to say something like that about Jesus when they said that Jesus is Lord. (laughs) What they meant was he is the sovereign one. He is the one who is in control. He is the one who has a claim on us. It is to him that we owe our allegiance. And for them, he was not just one option among many. Karl Barth put it perfectly, I think, in the mid-20th century when he said that the existence of Jesus Christ is the sovereign decision on the existence of every human being. But thankfully, gloriously, beautifully, this is precisely where the analogy with the Caesars, that parallel breaks down. Because the peace of Augustus' rule was held together by the threat of violence. It was a fake peace. Any benefits that came to someone living under Augustus' rule were secondary to the primary benefit, which was to continue to build Augustus' kingdom and his empire and his might and his name at any cost. But the question we have to ask is what is Jesus' rule like? Whose good does he seek? What kind of Lord is he, really? And so that question the Apostle Paul begins to answer in the beginning of that passage that we just read together and heard together, he is the image of the invisible God. That magnificent and mysterious phrase is Paul's way of saying, for instance, what the Apostle John said when he wrote his gospel. And he said that Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. Both of them are are saying the same thing as the author of Hebrews, what he meant in the passage that Pastor David walked us through last week, where it is said of Jesus that he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. All three of them together are trying to get across one of these beautiful, almost impenetrable truths that's at the heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. 
He is the one who makes the God, the God that we can't see known. When we look at Jesus, we see God's mirror image. We see the exact representation of his nature. They are saying that seeing Jesus is seeing God. And I know that that is hard to begin to get our minds around. It's hard to begin to touch. But Paul keeps plowing forward in this incredible passage. He says Jesus is not just that. He is the firstborn of creation. Which is his way of saying he is the one who has all of the rights and all of the privileges of a firstborn son. Everything is his. All of creation belongs to him. It's his inheritance. Everything you see is what Jesus gets from the Father. And then Paul goes even further and deeper. He says, Jesus created everything. All the stuff that you can see and all the stuff that you can't see. All of the power that you see at work in the world and all of the unseen power that stands behind the power that you can see. Every bit of it he created. By him all things were created. For him all things were created. Paul is unambiguously calling Jesus the creator, the maker, the sustainer of heaven and earth. He is before all things, Paul says. And in him, all things cohere. They hold together. So that's the first way that Paul answers our question, what kind of Lord is Jesus? He is the creator. He is the sustainer. Which is another way of saying, this place belongs to him. It's all his. The world, the universe, everything that stands behind the universe, it's his playground. It's his kingdom. It's the theater of his glory. And so I want to talk for just a little bit about what that means for those of us who confess that he is Lord. What does it mean to not only know that stuff is true with our heads, but to believe that it's true with every part of who we are? I just want to mention two things. The first is that professing Jesus as Lord means that there is no distinction between sacred things and secular things in this world. That distinction does not exist. It is not real. It is false. There is no distinction between those things. There aren't parts of our lives that are spiritual and religious and other parts of our lives that are unspiritual and non-religious. Everything is absolutely sacred for everyone. Because Jesus made absolutely everything. And everything coheres and has its meaning in him. It holds together in him. I I want us to hear that as clearly as we can. Everything is absolutely sacred for everyone. Because he made all of it. And it finds its meaning. It finds its home It finds its coherence in him. And church, this is true 
whether we agree with it or not. (laughs) It's true whether we think about it for one more minute or not. And here's what it means. It means that any inclination that you or I have uh, to value certain things that we perceive to be spiritual over other things that we perceive to be just earthly is something that we need to totally get rid of in our lives. We need to get rid of it as fast as we can. Some of us do this, I think, more than we realize, and we are reluctant to admit it. I'm talking about things like thinking that reading a novel is fine as far as it goes, but reading a novel with Christian people in it would be better. I'm talking about feeling this vague sense of unease, or maybe a vague sense of guilt even, that you make your living as as a banker or, or as a salesperson or in advertising instead of as a missionary or a pastor or a social worker. I'm talking about thinking, you know, not where you'd reason it out, not where you would say it and and, and it would be airtight, but just kind of having this vague sense that it, it would be more inherently valuable to perform Handel's Messiah than it would be to perform Miles Davis flamenco sketches. I'm talking about on the very street level thinking there are some parts of my life that are open to God that he cares a ton about. And there are other parts of my life that it just doesn't seem like he's interested in that aren't open to him. Church, all of that stuff is false if Jesus is Lord. There is nothing secular in this world. And it is comical to think that there is. Everything is sacred. Jesus is in and around every single conversation that we have with every human being we have it with. He is present in every single line of every single story that we tell or say to one another to entertain ourselves or to instruct ourselves. Jesus is present in every single moment of all of the work that we have ever done and will ever do with our hands. We do not need to make things spiritual because they already are spiritual. (laughs) And growing into maturity as a Christian means that people like you and me, we will start embracing, we will start celebrating the sacredness and the inherent goodness of every inch of creation on its own merit. Because he created it because it finds its meaning in him. And we need to find sacredness and we need to celebrate goodness, of course, in the stuff where it's easy to do. (laughs) You know, like oceans and mountains and canyons and stars. But just as much in the stuff that's hard to do. Like in a person who rubs you the wrong way who's always opposing you for some reason in a job that seems fruitless, like it doesn't really do anything. Church, that job, sacred. Those people, they are sacred. And if we confess that Jesus is Lord, that is what we agree to be true. 
And of course, this leads us directly into the second thing, that we confess to be true when we say that Jesus is Lord. And while it's absolutely true that all of the world, all of our human experience, every bit of experience within it belongs to him and that it shouldn't be carved up into sacred and secular, it would be a big mistake, a huge mistake, to imagine that good things cannot therefore be profaned and messed up. Of course they can. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting in a building that's shaped like a church (laughs) or like a cross. I'm sorry, we wouldn't be sitting in a building that's shaped like a cross. We wouldn't be looking uh, at the bread and wine on that table if good things could not be profaned and messed up and twisted. I mean, does art get profaned? Yes, absolutely it does. Does our sex get profaned? Yes, absolutely it does. Does our work, our calling, our vocation, can these things become profaned and and messed up and twisted? Yes, of course they can. And they do because there is not one part of Jesus' good world that is not touched by the fall. And so for me, and hopefully for all of us, that's why this image of Jesus as the one in whom all things hold together becomes so utterly captivating and so utterly compelling. Paul is saying that Jesus, he's the organizing principle. (laughs) He is the one thing around which everything else finds its meaning in proper place. And I know that that's dense as an idea, but I think the image is simple. The images of Jesus at the center and everything else orbiting close to him, staying close to home. And if that's true, then it follows that if humans move away from that center, if we, like we, we sang in that song of confession, if we, if we wander away from the center, we will find that our lives exhibit less and less of the order, less and less of the goodness of original creation, and more and more of the chaos and uncreation that was present before. As we move away from the coherent center of all things, as we move away from Jesus, we experience lack of coherence and lack of order. In other words, things begin to fall apart. Good things become profaned and marred and twisted. Church, this is absolutely true in my own life. It's undeniably true in my own life. As I move away from Jesus in thought, as I move away from him in action, there are consequences in my life that become immediately obvious, not just to me, but to everyone who's around me. When I move away from that home, from that center where the meaning and truth is, relationships get messed up. They become less and less about enjoyment. Relationships become less and less about love and more about what I can get out of them or how they might help me. As I move away from the center, from the home, from the meaning, from the coherence, My appreciation of beauty begins to change. My appreciation of of truth begins to change. Beauty starts to become less and less a window into the grandeur of God, to the grandeur of this amazing created order, 
and more about my own appetite that has to be sated at any cost. As I move away from the center, the pursuit of truth becomes less and less about being away from me to know God, to know who he is, and more about a way for me to have a power over others, an edge over others, so I can sound good and savvy and right. I trust that you can relate. As we move away from the center, things begin to deconstruct and unravel and deteriorate. And it makes sense because if part of confessing Jesus as Lord is confessing that we find our coherence in him, our meaning in him, our true home in him, then it also has to be true that if we move away from it and our confession starts to sound more and more like, you know, Aaron is Lord, then things fall apart. And so here's where we have to come back to the question that we ask in the very beginning. What kind of Lord is Jesus in this moment? What kind of Lord is Jesus? How will his rule over me, how will his claim over me play out precisely when I rebel against it? When I turn on my heels and walk away from him, how will he be Lord? Will he be like all the other Caesars of the world, the dictators, the despots? Does he stand threateningly over us? Here's the beginning of Paul's answer to that question in verse 18. No, he is the head of the body, the church. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. <laughs> that is how Jesus acts as Lord when his subjects run away from him. When they fail to acknowledge him as Lord, he establishes peace at the last for them and for the entire fallen world. And unlike all of the Caesars of the world who, who prop up a fake peace by throwing out violence and control against their subjects and their enemies, no, Jesus makes a real peace by becoming the object of violence. Violence perpetrated on him by people who should have been calling him Lord. That's church how Jesus is Lord. That's the kind of Lord that he is. It's right there in front of us for us to, to believe, even if it is difficult for us to begin to do it, to touch it, to feel it. Paul says he was pleased to do this. He was pleased to do this for me, for you, for the church, for the life of the world. He was pleased to have his body broken for us. And Paul makes sure that this really exalted, dense, beautiful language gets felt on the most intimate, personal level. He starts making it really clear because he keeps saying, you, you, you. 
You, Paul says, you who were once alienated, you who were once hostile in mind, you who were doing all these evil deeds. I mean, I don't, if there is a better description of a life that is wandering far from home, often its own orbit falling apart, I don't know what it is. You, you were once doing that. But now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And he's done it with this incredibly good purpose in mind. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Church, that's the kind of Lord Jesus is. And when we say with the creed that we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, we are professing faith in a creator Lord who runs the place and whose rule is single-mindedly devoted to our good and our flourishing, even if it will cost him everything. To submit to his reign is to be forgiven. It is to be brought near It is to be set at peace at last. Jesus is Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would do whatever it is that you need to do for every one of us here. (laughs) To see this as true. To believe that it's true, not only to confess it with our lips and with our mouths, but to believe it is true in the gut level of every day of our lives. To believe that we walk in your beautiful, sacred playground. And that everything that we do matters to you and it is filled with beauty. Father, help us to be a people who believe this and stay close to that as the center, as the coherence, as the meaning, as the home. Help us not to wander from you. Father, we pray that you would do this for our good and for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.